Turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 3. This is week 9 of our series through the book of Romans. And uh, if you are, if you like math or you've done the math, you have already realized we're going to be in this series for a little while. We're averaging uh, a little over three sermons per chapter. There are 16 chapters in Romans, so I'm guessing uh, we're going to be probably in the mid-50s in terms of the number of sermons. Uh, But by way of encouragement, uh, that's actually a short Roman series compared to what others have done uh, over the years. The great London preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones preached through Romans. It took him 372 sermons to get through the book. And even that was brisk compared to the Baptist uh, preacher, the Minnesotan, John Piper, who started preaching through Romans in 1998 and finished up in 2006. So it took him uh, eight years. So really in our 54-ish sermons, this is just basically a flyover of the book. So we're not going to take that long to be in it, but it is so rich and so dense that, you know, it takes at least that long to, I think, rightly uh, exposit it. And if you're wondering why we preach through books of the Bible and we don't do three-week series on love, hate, finances, whatever, uh, come to Pizza with the Pastors, and that's, we're going to answer that question uh, in that gathering. Well, have you ever heard of the phrase EQ? So you've surely, you know what IQ is. IQ is intelligence quotient, refers to a person's ability to to reason and process information. Well, EQ is emotional quotient, and this really basically refers to self-awareness. So it's how do I come across to other people? How do my emotions and my actions actually affect other people? Um, when, I, when I speak to someone, does it appear as though I'm listening to them or does it appear as though I'm just ready to talk, uh, ready to say what I have to say? Uh, how welcoming is my disposition? Do people, do I come across as warm and inviting and caring or, or do I come across as cold and stoic? You know, it is possible for us to have a low EQ and actually believe that we come across in a certain way that we actually don't. Uh, we, might, we might believe that we are uh, hilarious, funny and witty, but we might actually come across to other people as obnoxious and offensive. Uh, we, we might think that we are charming and self-effacing, but we might actually come across to other people as being um, annoying or proud or obnoxious or any of those sorts of things. Uh, Janine and I know a lady who's in her 40s, different state, different church, none of you know who this is, but uh, she's in her 40s and she still talks like a baby intentionally. So she, you know, she, you talk to her and she, she talks like a baby and I think she thinks it's cute, but it's actually just weird. You know, you, 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 I've wanted to ask her many times, like, why are you talking like that? Um, we can come across in a way very different than what we expect. I, I read a, a series of studies recently on trying to discern why some people in pastoral ministry are in ministry for decades and decades, and some people in a much shorter span. And the number one reason for longevity among pastors, which is not surprising, is uh, the conviction of the call. So if you're going to last in pastoral ministry, you have to have a strong conviction that this is what the Lord's called me to. But the number two reason that surface was more surprising, and that is a, a high EQ, 
A high self-awareness, knowing how we come across to people. So what people are saying, sociologists are saying that a high EQ is actually more important than a high IQ as it relates to getting along in our marriages, our relationships, as neighbors, friends, you know, in ministry, and so on. Well, as important as how we view ourselves is, and, and it is important, what's far more important is how God views us. In fact, God's verdict of us is so much more important than anything we might think about ourselves because the scriptures are very clear that God is the ultimate judge. He is the one who will judge the living and the dead. Uh, in fact, Paul will say in the passage that we're in this morning that he is the just and the justifier. So we've been working through this book again. This is our ninth week, and we've seen really from chapter 1, verse 18 until now, Paul's been really dealing in some really bad news. Horrible, horrible news. Uh, but lest people become totally defeated without any hope of a relationship with God or without any hope, uh, hope for eternity, Paul has actually been building his case for the glory of the good news. And he will camp out this morning in this short passage on a phrase, the righteousness of God. And we're going to see this morning three aspects of the righteousness of God and what each means for us. So Romans chapter 3, I'm just going to read the whole section. Actually, the section we're in is 21 through 26, but in order for that to make sense, let me start with verse 20. So Romans 3, verses 20 through 26, here reads the word of the Lord. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now we'll talk more about that in chapters 5 and 7. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Even as I read that, you probably noticed just how dense that is, almost every word is loaded with meaning, packed with meaning. Um, Martin Luther, the 16th century reformer, said that uh, this very passage that I just read uh, was the chief point and the primary motif of all of Romans, and not just all of Romans, but the whole Bible. So back in chapter 1, Paul said he's not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Uh, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Now in chapter 3, Paul's going to, again, he's going to spend more time explaining in detail what he means by the phrase, the righteousness of God, and how that actually affects us. So what is the righteousness of God? Are we talking about God's own character? Are we talking about God's own holiness, uh, His perfections? Not here, not here. When Paul talks about the righteousness of God here, he's talking about what, he's talking really in terms of what we might call forensic or, or legal terms. The phrase, the righteousness of God, is God's pronouncement, God's declaration, not guilty, 
of those who stand otherwise condemned. So, so think of a courtroom scene. Uh, which should be easy to do. They're like 80% of television shows are now courtroom dramas. So think of a courtroom scene and, and you're on trial and the evidence is just overwhelmingly against you. In fact, the evidence is actually indisputable. You are guilty as charged. And you know it. You actually know you're guilty. And so you are you're bracing yourself for the sentencing portion of this, this scene and you know that it's going to be very bad. You just don't know how bad. And as you await the sentencing, the judge hammers down the gavel and says, not guilty. You won't suffer for your, uh, your wrongdoings. You won't be uh, punished for your offenses. You won't be condemned for your crimes. You don't even need to appeal. You have been declared not guilty. You've been fully restored to a right status, given a clean record, and now you will enjoy all the privileges that go along with freedom and citizenship. Now, someone might say, well, that's not fair. I mean, you, you just said that the person was guilty and all the evidence was stacked against. Well, we're, we'll get to that in a minute. But I want to define the righteousness of God as we move forward. Again, the declaration of God of not guilty. And Paul says, even though no one will be declared not guilty based on obedience to the law, that is to say their good works, their good behavior, because everyone has violated the law, but now, verse 21, there is a righteousness that is apart from the law. It is independent from the law. It does not depend on the law. So what do we see about God's righteousness right away? Here's our first point. The righteousness of God is a gifted status. A status we contribute nothing to by our obedience. When Paul says that this righteousness is apart from the law, he's saying that God's not guilty verdict will never be ours because we've done enough good, our good works have outweighed our bad, or we've been a good person, whatever it is. That righteousness has to come apart from the law, separate from the law, from some other way besides our obedience. When I was serving at a, another church years ago, there was a man in the congregation who was in his mid-80s who got a terrible diagnosis from the doctor. And he didn't have long to live, uh, but he was just you know, trying to enjoy the very few days that he had left. He was, uh, he was Ukrainian. He had come to the United States and built this big real estate empire. We lived in Southern California, and, um, and he was really just counting down his days. Well, he sent me an email, asked if we, would, if we could have lunch together. I, I said, sure, I'd love to have lunch. Why don't we meet at, there was a Greek restaurant called Jimmy's Diner. Why don't we meet at Jimmy's? He said, no, I'd rather pick you up. I said, okay. And Bob was, his name was Bob. He, he was a guy who loved cars. And I knew, I knew when, he, when all this went on, he wanted to pick me up because he wanted me to see his car. He was very, very excited about this. It was the most tricked out sedan I'd ever seen. So he picked me up and I got in the car and we're riding you know, to, to the restaurant. And after a little bit of small talk, I said to him, I said, Bob, you know, only the Lord knows, you know, how much time you have left here on earth, but it's probably not going to be that long, you know, given, you know, your, your most recent prognosis and, and um, diagnosis. And I said, you know, when that day comes and, and you stand before God and you're, you're right there before the judge and creator, what are you going to say? I mean, why, why are you, do you think God should grant you entrance into heaven? And he thought about it for a minute and he said, you know, 
He said, I have no fears or concerns because I've done my very best to live for God. And I said, okay, what does that mean exactly? Like, what do you mean by that? He said, I've been extremely generous. I've looked out for those in need. I have supported all kinds of people in my family and other people. Um, I've, I've done my business with, you know, with integrity. And he said, I, I, I know that I've done enough good that when I stand before God, he'll see, I've lived for him. And I said, Bob, and he talked about, he was, you know, again, he was 80, he's been married over 60 years. And I said, Bob, I'm really encouraged by all the sacrifices you've made and all the good you've done. And whenever I see somebody who's been married for 60 plus years, I'm inspired by that. I think that's awesome. I said, but none of those things you mentioned is going to be enough before God so that he would actually grant you entrance into heaven. Because you cannot do enough. You, all it takes is one sin, one offense, one violation of God's law, and we are rendered guilty for all of it. It's not uncommon among Christians to think in terms of our salvation that God does his part, and then we kind of fill out what's lacking by our obedience. But that actually is a spiritually fatal equation. Soon as we believe that we contribute in some way to our salvation, we get some credit for it, we've actually lost the true gospel. New Testament uh, theologian John Murray says this about the phrase, apart from the law. The absoluteness of this negation must not be toned down. Paul means without reservation or equivocation that in justification, that is that declaration of not guilty, there's no contribution preparatory, accessory, or subsidiary that is given by works of the law. In other words, we contribute nothing to it on the front end, nothing in the middle of it, and we don't supplement any of it at the end. Our salvation is all of God. Now remember, Paul's writing to this church at Rome, and it's made up of some Jews and some Gentiles, and as you've heard me say multiple times, and there was a lot of animosity and tension there. Well, the Jews believed that they were, because they were God's people, they'd been given the law, they were God's covenant people, uh, that they were good with God based on their sort of ethnic and religious status. But in that, that perception, in that misunderstanding, uh, they had actually rejected the true righteousness of God, which is by faith alone. They thought because they had opened the law, they knew the law, they were secure in their standing with God. But Paul makes it very clear that our rule-keeping will never get us into God's graces, nor will it keep us there. If our confidence is in our good works, we're in no better shape than the one who completely rejects God's law. Both are different versions of gospel rejection and self-reliance. Okay, so Paul says the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. And then he says, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. This is a theme for the apostle going back to Chapter 1, verse 2, that this good news is not new news. When I, in the mid uh, to late 1990s, I was a sports anchor with CNN, and I every day worked in a newsroom, and, uh, which is, you have know, desks all over and people writing scripts, and it's, it's kind of an interesting thing because you walk in and everybody's in front of their computer speaking out loud, kind of reading their story or whatever. Well, you walk in the newsroom, there was a big plaque right as you first walk in to the right, and it said... Whoever coined the phrase, no news is good news, now remember this is a news organization, no news is good news, had a perverse and dull mind. And the thing is, you know, news is not always bad news. 
Sometimes news is good, and sometimes news is actually old news. And what Paul's saying is, ever since the fall of man, this has been promised. Way back in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden, given a death sentence, and God's curse is pronounced on mankind and the earth, and even as God announces that curse, he says in Genesis 3.15 to the serpent, the seed of the woman will crush your head. In other words, there is one coming who will restore everything that's wrong with this world, including reconciling men, women, and children to God. And the whole of Scripture, this law and the prophets is just kind of a euphemism for the whole Hebrew Bible. This whole, all of Scripture, which Paul summarizes the law and the prophets, points to that coming one, the Redeemer and King, who would destroy Satan, death, and corruption. Now look at verses 22 through 25a here again. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. So, again, so the Jews thought that God's salvation was just for them. Again, they were God's people. Uh, they were given God's law. And Paul actually stuns them. Now, we miss, you know, we don't really catch up on just how shocking this was immediately, but Paul stuns them by saying that God's salvation, His forgiveness, His mercy, His verdict of acquittal, His complete salvation is available to all who believe without distinction. God shows no partiality when it comes to the people He saves. He saves all who believe which is critical because Paul also says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which simply means that although we were created in God's image to glorify Him, obey Him, and we can even say chapters 1 and 2, bask in the glory of His approval, uh, that's in chapter 2, we have lost that glory, we can no longer in our sin-cursed status live in the presence of God, nor do we have His praise, we have fallen short, so something's got to give. Now, here's our second point as it relates to the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is desperately needed by all, available to all, regardless of one's ethnic, racial, social, or moral status. You know, when I you know, prepare a sermon, I'm working on sermon, I'm trying to you know, exegete, bring the meaning out of the text, and, and then part of that is, of course, exposition, explaining the text, and and thinking about application. And to be candid, I, I, I had to think long and hard about how to apply this uh, for us. Because I don't think, and I could be wrong on this, and correct me afterward if I'm wrong on this, I don't think that any of us would, would believe that a particular race of people, or even a, quote, class of people, are beyond God's saving grace, or should be excluded from you know, the gospel message proclamation. But I do think we might be inclined to believe that some people are so far gone morally that they have no hope of salvation, and maybe, though we would probably never say this, maybe don't even deserve to hear the gospel. One of the reasons the Jews and Gentiles hated each other so badly is because each deemed the other immoral. Jews viewed Gentiles as idol-worshiping, irreligious barbarians, and Gentiles view Jews as uptight, self-righteous legalists. 
Their hatred was as much religious as it was ethnic. Both despised the customs and practice of the day. And so that's why I include in that point, regardless of one's ethnic, racial, social, or moral status, because that was part of what their hatred was based on. And I wonder for us, I wonder if there are people that we have in our minds that are so far gone morally, maybe that we despise so much morally, that we just believe they don't, they don't even deserve the gospel. I don't know who it would be for you. Uh, I don't know who it would be for us. Uh, but Paul says that God's grace is available to all and desperately needed by all because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When Paul says that all have sinned, that includes you and me. And it means we're not just sort of uh, generic or general sinners. We are actually specific sinners. It's not just that, you know, everybody's willing to say, just about everybody, well, yeah, I'm a sinner, and of course I'm a sinner. But it means that we actually, we get sinfully angry, and we gossip, and we lust, and we lie, and we get impatient, and we hate and demean our enemies. We're puffed up with self-righteousness and very quick to judge the people around us. We're not just sinners in general. We have violated God's commands specifically, and we have fallen short of the glory of God. But look at verses 24 and 25. I realize I'm reading this multiple times, but there's so much in there. They're justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward. That's that's very important. I'll explain why in a minute. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. So I joke sometimes um, about engineers and their tendencies, and it's all in love. It's all in love. And, uh, and, and engineers joke back with me, and I realize, of course, that not all engineers are the same, and I realize that engineers aren't the only ones who, are, who can be hyper-analytical. I understand that. Engineers aren't the only ones who can get mired in minutiae. Theologians can do the same thing for sure. Uh, I saw my nephew last, uh, well, on July 4th for the first time in, in about a year, and he walked up to me. He's a senior theology major at a university in Tennessee, and he walked up to me, and, and again, I hadn't seen him in a year. He didn't say, hey, Uncle John, how you doing? Hi, you know, good to see you, whatever. The first thing he said to me was, have you embraced the filioque clause? The first thing he said to me. Um, the Filioque Clause is, goes from a, it's from a controversy in 1054 A.D. On, on whether the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father or from the Father or from the Father and the Son, Filioque and the Son. And so I just kind of responded in turn. I didn't say hi to him or how you doing or good to see you. I said, um, I said, no, I don't really buy it. But uh, are you a superlapsarian yet? And um, he said, no, I can't really get there. Uh, theologians and 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 budding theologians like my nephew. Um, we're sometimes accused of parsing words, getting you know, neck deep in the minutia, and, and, and sometimes accused of getting lost in semantics, you know, the very specific wording. Why are you so concerned about the very specific wording? Well, sometimes, actually a lot of the time, the very specific wording is of paramount importance. It's very, very critical. After all, every word of the scripture is breathed out by the very mouth of God. So there are two things I want to point out in this passage that may seem like 
minutia, but let me assure you, uh, they're far from it. So one is, Paul says that our justification, the pronouncement that we are not guilty uh, for our sins, and indeed credited with the obedience of Jesus, is by grace as a gift. He says it is a gift received by faith. Now that word received is very important. He doesn't say it's a gift caused by faith. He says it's received by faith. Sometimes we hear it subtly suggested, we may even say it in our own language, and when we say that it is our faith that saves us. But here Paul says that it's Christ Jesus who saves us by living for us, dying for us, being raised for us, and our faith is the instrument by which we receive the salvation that Jesus provides. It's not our faith that saves us. It is Jesus who saves us. His obedience, his atoning death, again, his resurrection in our place. Now, you might say, why does that matter? Um, or as this friend of mine who has a PhD from Cambridge will sometimes ask me, what's the value of that insight? Here's the value of the insight. If we believe that our faith saves us, that will lead to a very shaky foundation. Because you know as well as I do, sometimes you feel like our faith is just so strong we can take on any challenge the world throws at us. My faith is just that strong and, and just anchored and solid. But there are other times when our faith is shaky and our faith is weak and we feel like, Lord, I just can't handle one more thing. One more thing is going to be my undoing. And so if we believe that it's our faith that saves us, then when we have doubts and fears uh, we will feel like we are, you know, we're in, in jeopardy in terms of our salvation. We may even feel like God is far from us. I was with a man in the hospital once 15, 16 years ago who was only moments from death, you know, by all appearances and had been pronounced as such by the doctor. And he was in a coma, you know, he was totally inactive. He was breathing, but he was motionless and not speaking for the longest time. And then all of a sudden, and you, those of you who are in the medical field, you know this is not that uncommon, but all of a sudden he went from being completely comatose to alert, awake, and speaking, and, and very demonstrative uh, there in the hospital bed. And when he woke up, what came to his mind first was he was terrified that he didn't have enough faith, that he did not have enough faith. This was a man who walked with Jesus for 60 of his 78 years, who was well known to be a person of deep faith, who loved the Lord and loved God's people. And yet he was beside himself with fear that maybe his faith wasn't strong enough. Maybe his faith wasn't real enough. Maybe his faith, it, it just, it wasn't enough. And if we believe that it's our faith that saves us, we will have bouts where we start to wonder, well, when was it that I really trusted in Jesus? Maybe I didn't really trust in Jesus. And, you know, some people go through this over and over and over again, right? Um, or we'll say, we may have uh, times we wonder, I don't know, was I really serious enough when I trusted Jesus? Is my faith strong enough? Is it sincere enough? Is it deep enough? Is it real enough? But when we realize that Christ is the one who saves us, not our faith, there's a sense of relief and a sense of rest, and a sense of peace. I love what pastor and theologian Scott Swain says. He says, Jesus is the agent who accomplishes all saving graces for us and in us. Jesus saves. 
justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies his people in fulfillment of his Father's sovereign purpose and by means of the Spirit's power. His name is Jesus because he saves his people from their sins. So if you know that you're a sinner and you're trusting in Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection, you're still going to have doubts. And you're still going to have weak moments. And you're still going to have moments when you think, man, I don't know if I can handle another thing. You'll have times when your faith, again, seems so strong. And you'll have times when your faith seems so weak. It's, it's, uh, so weak it's on the verge of crumbling. Well, here's the thing. It's okay. It's okay. Your confidence is not in your faith, but in Jesus, the object of your faith, and he will never, ever let you go. Now, a second thing to point out here by saying that Christ is the propitiation or the sacrifice of atonement for our sins, Paul is saying that Jesus' work on the cross actually had two audiences in mind. We're accustomed as Christians to naturally think about how the cross of Jesus benefits us and praise God for that. Um, we'll see even more how it does in a minute. But the cross work of Jesus first achieve something for God, so to speak. It satisfied the wrath of God against sin. Paul's already mentioned several times, the wrath of God. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Well, God's wrath had to be atoned for. It had to be satisfied. It had to be poured out. A sacrifice had to be made to appease the wrath of a holy God. So God himself, verse 25, put forward his son as that atoning sacrifice. On the cross, God's wrath is turned away from us and directed to the person of Jesus instead. And this is because, again, verse 25, God put forward the son to be a sacrifice, which the father did out of his profound love, his immeasurable love for us. Um, if you've ever taught anything, regardless of the field, you, you know that you, you learn most, you learn best when you teach. That's, you know, because of the preparation, because you, you have to, in some ways, have a mastery of the material, you anticipate questions. So when you teach, you, you learn best. Well, I preached through the Gospel of John here at Capshaw, I don't know, two and a half years ago, and the Lord taught me all kinds of things, gratefully. But one thing that I realized when I was preaching through John that I really, I had no awareness of until I'm, I'm working through John's Gospel is that I had way back in my mind, and this is not something that I'd done, you know, sort of consciously, but I had way back in my mind, in some distant, faraway place, I had conceived of Jesus as more loving than the Father. Because Jesus, after all, was the one who lived for us and suffered for us and died for us. And so in my mind, I, I, in some, for some reason, I had that, that Jesus was kind of, he kind of loved us more than the Father. The Father loved us, but it was more of kind of a, you know, begrudging love. But Jesus really loved us. But somewhere in those chapters of John 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, whatever, um, God really helped me to understand, as we see over and over, that we see that the Father sent the Son because He loves us. The Father sent the Son because He loves us. It's not as though God, the Father, is kind of indifferent toward us, uh, but Jesus really loves us. No, the Father loves us and sent His Son. So here Paul says God put forward Jesus to die for us, to redeem us, to free us from the bondage 
of sin, death and hell, and he does so because he loves us. If you're a Christian, you have a heavenly father who loves you in a way that you can know, but you can't fully fathom. He deeply cares about you. He delights you. He knows you and loves you. I'm going to steal an illustration from one of my favorite preachers, my oldest son, who told me about this uh, a little while ago. This, there's a special a documentary of sorts on TV on the sorority rush system at the University of Alabama. Apparently, this is a national phenomenon. I didn't realize that. Uh, but, you know, people all over the country are talking about the rush system, you know, rushing to become part of a sorority at, at Alabama. And in one of the clips um, early on in the, in the documentary, there's a girl who's asked why she's so excited, why she's so fired up about rushing in this sorority. And she said, you know, I feel like my family loves me. I don't doubt that. But I don't really know, I don't think they know the true me. They don't know how I am at school. They don't know how I am around my friends. I feel like they love me. That I'm not really sure that they really know me. And she said, but my friends, I mean, they really know me. They, they know me and they've seen me in these, you know, different scenarios. And I feel like they really know me, but I wonder sometimes if they really love me. Well, if you are in Christ, you are known and loved by the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer, the one who made you and the whole world. And he actually loves you and knows you better than anyone else. He knows your sin patterns. He knows your thoughts. He knows your proclivities. He knows what you're good at and what you're bad at. He knows you better than anyone. And he loves you better than anyone. He is your father. He loves you so much that he put forward his son to die in your place and in mine. Well, one of the questions that people often ask when they're wrestling with the Christian faith is, if God is so loving... Why would he allow such evil in the world? Why would God allow evil? Now, I've only got four minutes left in this message, so I'm not going to fully address or even partly address the problem of evil, but just want to let you know that's a question people ask. And, you know, answers are you know, typically hardly adequate anyway. But a question that accompanies that is, if God is so loving, shouldn't he care about injustice? If God's so loving, shouldn't he be bothered by all the sin in the world? Okay, look at verses 25 and 26. Paul says, whom God put forward, that is the Son, Christ Jesus, as a propitiation by the blood, by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What was it that would show God's righteousness? It was the putting forward of Christ to die. More specifically, it was Christ's death on the cross. If I ask you a question, should God be tolerant, how would you answer? Now, you might be inclined first to say, well, you know, recognizing our own sinfulness and, you know, the ways that we fail. So you might want to say, yeah, I, yes, because I, we don't want God up in heaven just sort of, 
you know, shooting down fireballs every time we have an immoral thought or deed. And so you might say yes, but then you might think more and you might say, well, but as you consider all the evil in the world, you might say, well, I don't, I don't really know if God should be tolerant because I see all the injustice and I see the abuse and I see the pain and I see that violence and I see the hatred. Um, so, you know, you might, it, it's not an easy question to answer. Well, Paul tells us that God is both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Because God is holy, his wrath against sin and injustice, as I mentioned, it must be satisfied. So, satisfied. so God can never just sort of look the other direction, pretend like evil doesn't exist, you know, let bygones be, be bygones, so to speak. And we wouldn't want God to be that way. Again, think about some of the great evils in our world. Abuse, sex trafficking, rape, domestic violence, racism, oppression, hatred. If God were indifferent to those things, could we say that he's just? Would we be inclined to worship a God who doesn't care about all the injustice in the world? A holy God must judge sin. But that's a frightening thing because we also know that we're all sinners. In fact, Paul just made that clear. We know that the greatest evils are not necessarily out there. They are in our own hearts. And so that means if God is just, we must be judged. And that's what makes verse 26 so beautiful and so comforting. Paul says about God, he is the just and the justifier. God always deals with sin. He punishes sin. For those who are unjust, evil, violent, idolatrous, wicked, indeed all who sin... God will mete out his punishment on the day of judgment where he will pour out his wrath on all who sinned in any way. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. But for the one who believes, God actually punished his own son for our rebellion. God does not set aside his justice. He turns his just anger to his son so that we could escape it. He is the justifier. The people God justifies are wicked. They're, they're, they, those who believe are no less wicked than anyone else. But, the, but as the just and the justifier, God punishes Jesus in their place by pouring out his perfect wrath on his perfect son. And he credits to those who believe Christ's perfect obedience. Again, John Murray writes, God loved the objects of his wrath so much that he gave his own son to the end that by his blood, he should make provision for the removal of his wrath. On the cross, God's justice and love take center stage. Both shine perfectly and beautifully and reveal most arrestingly the glory of God's righteousness. Here's our final point. The righteousness of God is infinitely intolerant of evil, while at the same time infinitely good and loving. How is God just? He always punishes sin. How is God the justifier? He justifies the wicked by sending His Son to live, die, absorb God's wrath, and be raised again on the third day as, the fi as final and indisputable evidence that the sacrifice of Jesus was enough. All of which shows us His goodness and love. So how does that comfort us? Two ways in two minutes. First of all, if you've been wronged, if you've been hurt, if you've been abused, if you've been sinned against, if you have had someone treat you in a horrible way, you can rest assured that a just God has seen it, 
cares about it, and will do something about it. You can be sure of that. You can be sure of that. And secondly, you can also be sure that for all the wrongs you've committed and all the wrongs I've committed, God has already poured out his wrath on Jesus. If you're in Christ, you don't have to fear God's wrath. You don't have to fear God's judgment. You don't have to fear judgment day because your verdict has already been declared. You are not guilty. And now instead of judgment, what you will receive is a new home on a new earth prepared for you, which as we sang about, we were, where we will eat and drink and feast and dance forever. And you have received a new status, a new worth, so to speak, that is not contingent upon or dependent upon your abilities, what you do, what you say, what you've achieved, what you own. Your worth is forever settled at the cross and your value is fixed and forever settled by the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.